Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I am told there's some sort of a sporting event taking place tonight. (laughs) I don't know what it is, probably a 49ers game or something. I don't know. But, uh... The Warriors. Warriors. (laughs) Okay. And the Sharks. And the Sharks. Well, root, root, root for the home team. Yay, sports. Yeah. (laughs) On that note... Coming to you from the Toby Family Auditorium at the Commonwealth Club, it's Week to Week, the political roundtable for Monday, May 6, 2019. So much has happened in the last almost month since our last program. Luckily, a lot of it has been online, such as Jerry Falwell Jr., who uh, called online for reparations to be paid to the president because he lost two years of his presidency due to the Mueller investigation. (laughs) It gets better. Uh, President Trump, not surprisingly, retweeted this and retweeted the call for his term to be extended by two years because of the, these, this time that was stolen. And this, and this is true. He misspelled stolen with an extra L, which actually makes it stolen, which means that the first two years of his pres- presidency were a traditional German fruit bread made with nuts, spices, and dried or candied fruit coated with powdered sugar or icing. So. <laughs> I'm John Zipper, your sugar-coated host for Week to Week. (laughs) On today's program, we're going to discuss the congressional confrontation with Attorney General Bill Barr. Bob Barr. Bill Barr. Any Barr. Um, We'll also talk about Governor Newsom's water plans and other state news, the Facebook ban on a handful of extremist figures and more, and of course, we'll send you off with our live news quiz. Everyone is welcome at the Commonwealth Club. Doesn't matter where you are on the political spectrum. You're welcome, and any opinions that are expressed up here are those solely of the speakers and not of the Commonwealth Club. So let's meet our panelists for today. We'll start at the far end of the stage with Chuck Nevius at CW Nevius. He's a columnist for the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, of course, former longtime columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. You can follow him on Twitter at CW Nevius. So welcome back, Chuck. Thank you. Next is Melissa Kane, political and legal reporter for CBS Bay Area. So welcome back, Melissa. And next to me is Martin Reynolds, co-executive director of the Maynard Institute, also the director of the Reveal Investigative Fellows Program, and he's on Twitter at Reynolds Post. Welcome back. I think you all know that we have question cards spread throughout the room, so you know how to fill out some cards, and they'll be picked up and delivered to me, and I'll work them into our conversation here tonight. But let's start with the news that uh, pretty much headlined everywhere last week. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Attorney General Bob Barr, not Bill, uh, testified before the Senate Judiciary it's, Committee. It, it's Bill. Is it? I'm changing his name to Bob. I like right. it better. <laughs> Someone who is claiming to be the Attorney General um, testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and it was a very contentious exchange with the committee Democrats. Uh, following that, Barr, <laughs> just call him, he then declared he was not going to testify before the House Judiciary Committee, and this spawned charges that he had lied to Congress and was covering up for the President. Now, As a result of Barr's refusal to serve up the uncensored version of the Mueller report to members of Congress, House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler of New York prepared his committee to vote on a contempt of Congress proceeding against Barr. In response, the Justice Department has invited Nadler to negotiate. So let's start there. And I want to start with you, Melissa. Contempt of Congress, does that matter? Not really. <laughs> Not by itself. You know, yeah, yeah, well, you are in contempt. Well, well okay. Um, it doesn't mean anything. Not intrinsically. Um, what he's asking them to vote on is, um, is a move to actually have the U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia bring a criminal case against Bill Barr for uh, for contempt, and so so I mean, so just declaring someone in contempt doesn't really matter. If you look at Eric Holder, for example, he was held in contempt by the this is when the shoe was on the other foot when we had Republican controlled House and a Democratic executive. So um, Eric Holder was held in contempt for refusing to turn over certain documents related to the Fast and Furious, uh, you know, investigation and issue, um, and so. At that point, 
the house voted to hold him in contempt. You notice he didn't uh, go to jail. He was just fine. <laughs> like everything was fine. Uh, and they then sued him in federal court to get those documents. By the way, the case is still going on, right? We don't even know who won yet. <laughs> it is still going on. The judge in that case ordered Holder to turn over documents in 2014 and then uh, some, some more, I think, in 2016. But that's the thing about going through the federal civil process to enforce a subpoena. It takes forever and ever. So what they've asked right now is for the, um, again, the U.S. attorney to institute criminal proceedings against Barr, which is a little different than what happened with Holder. Um, Will the Department of Justice actually do that (laughs) to the attorney general? Maybe not. Um, we're not sure if they're actually going to f- pursue that. But in any event, remember, it's, if, if it's a criminal prosecution, that doesn't force you to turn over documents, right? That punishes you for not. So, and actually, it's, it's, it, it sort of takes away the incentive, right? <laughs> because you say, well, if I've already been convicted, then why would I turn them over? So, uh, so it actually, I'm not sure really uh, what they think is going to happen here. But um, let's assume he gets uh, the maximum penalty, which I think is uh, a month or two in jail and it's like a $10,000 fine. Um, you know, it, it, that doesn't necessarily disgorge the, the documents. You actually have to go through civil court to get that done. And, and that takes a, a long time. The, the, the bottom line is, um, for, for folks in Congress, you are very limited in how you can get a subpoena enforced. They really, they talk a good game and there's like, there's a jail in the Capitol, which there is not a jail in the Capitol. Uh, but, you know, we're going to handcuff him. No, you're not. It's not a thing. And so there's a lot of talk among Democrats, but the truth is they really have very little power to enforce a contempt, uh, to enforce a, you know, any issues when it comes to not answering a subpoena, especially against the lead, uh, the lead person in the, you know, in the law enforcement role that he's in, because that would be his office that would, that could potentially do something. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't see Bill in jail. You know, I don't think that's going to (laughs) happen. Um, somebody said the other day, I mean, how many deadlines has Jerry Nadler set so far? I mean, he's, he's, it's April 23rd and that's it, you know, and they go, <coughs> no, and he said, okay, the 26th, no. And who among us doesn't see how this is going to play out? And you can tell Melissa's an attorney because she laid it out so perfectly. It's going to be a long drawn out process. And the actual reality is that the Congress has, sounds like they have a, a lot of power, but they don't really. They can keep this forefront. They can keep it as an issue for people to discuss. But, you know, if they're not, if uh, Mnuchin said today, no tax returns. Is anyone surprised by that? I mean, that's what they're going to do. It's going to be delayed, delayed, delayed. It's only another two years, not even that long. This is the way this is going to go. And it's, a, it's an infuriating churn of events that really doesn't seem to get anywhere. And I think that's the... It's kind of the um, it's kind of the template for the Trump presidency. Mm-hmm. And I think what stands out to me in this situation is just what's being lost in all of this, or perhaps overshadowed by process, is just the egregiousness of what we all uncovered. Right? Barr comes out, gives a press conference that oh everything's fine. Oh, he was actually just feeling very sadly about how he was president as he was being portrayed, and it makes perfect sense that he would be upset, uh, sort of completely kowtowing for the president. And when, in fact, there are signs that they welcomed the help of a foreign power to swing an election, uh, how effective it was, we're not quite sure, but just the fact that an administration would welcome that, uh, that there was clear, only by sheer virtue of uh, incompetence was there not a conspiracy for collusion, right? They tried, but they couldn't reach people. Uh, folks like Carter Page and whatnot can't seem to figure out how to get back in touch with the Russians. Uh, so it just, it just seems like for sheer co- incompetence or, or were these not crimes. And then on top of that, you have people not willing to do what Trump asked, uh, which could easily been conscrutive con- as, uh, as obstruction. So I just think we can't lose sight of, of how egregious and how unethical this administration has been from leading up to the president to the election and since in efforts to try and quiet uh, the help that they were happy to receive. Well, and I, I do want to point out, too, that it's not just that the Congress, uh, that the House has very little power to enforce this subpoena and, and, you know, act on this contempt vote, but but also the president doesn't have all the power either. The president can't, for example, prevent Mueller from testifying. I mean, he's tweeted, no, I don't want Mueller to testify, but I don't, I, it's not clear he has any power to do that. 
Bill well, Barr well, has well, the power to do that potentially, but um, but he has said no, that's fine with me. Um, and also now we have um, Don McGahn, uh, who uh, has been called uh, and probably will have to testify. And, and it's not clear the president can prevent that either. Although he'll have some attorney-client privilege issues to, to deal with. And so so the president can't really you know direct all this and and sort of make this as um, as big of a sort of stall as mm-hmm. as he necessarily would like. There are some folks who are gonna who are going to testify potentially that, that he really can't stop. The only thing I would say is, uh, I, I don't know how many people read the Mueller report. I read the Mueller report. The first part is just blindingly hard to follow, so I, I kind of fell asleep. But I got to the second part, which is about obstruction, and it's actually fascinating. And that document is going to be hung in the halls of history for years to come, and people are going to go back and look at that. And as Martin said, we're talking about Don McGahn where the president went to him and said, you tell them that I never said to fire Comey. Tell them I never said to fire Comey. And he said, you did say to fire Comey. Well, I didn't use the word fire. Well, but you still did. And then came back after that and said, we want you to post-date a document saying that that I never said to fire Comey. And I want you to post-date it so we can put it in our files. And that's when McGahn said he was ready to resign. I mean, that's sworn testimony. And that's going to exist, as I said, in history for years. And those tweets will appear and they'll disappear. But down the road, this presidency is going to have a real legacy of dishonesty. And it's right there in the Mueller report. And you mentioned Bob Mueller and it is Bob. Uh, <laughs> You're getting better, John. Had to look it up and double check. <laughs> referring to just everyone. call him William. Just, <laughs> Everybody's um, Bill. But Bob Mueller uh, testifying. They, there's, I guess, a, a tentative date of May 15th, mm-hmm. the Ides of May, uh, in which he will uh, testify, I believe, for the, the House Judiciary Committee. Yeah. Um, Donald Trump has come out against this, said Mueller uh, should not testify, which is a bit confusing because... The president has said that the Mueller report completely exonerates him. So unless he's afraid of being, you know, exonerated too much, you would think he would <laughs> welcome this. But, um, I mean, is that, so are we all, like, planning our May 15th around this? Well, I think the great thing, there was a story today in Politico that he completely blindsided his advisors by suddenly reversing and saying Mueller shouldn't testify. And their response was, let's just pretend like that didn't happen, Okay. <laughs> Let's just leave it alone. And, and that's what we've come to. Well, I, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. A, what Mueller's going to say. I mean, because c- to be clear, I mean, he's, he, he seems so far to be so professional and so, um, you know, concerned with keeping his own personal ideas out of it. Here's what they're going to, here's what they want to know. Do you think this was bad? Do you think this was obstruction? And he's going to say, I'm not answering that question, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't my job to answer that question because we can't indict the president. He's going to say this. Everything that's in the report, he's like, you have 400 pages. I don't have anything to add to that. Uh, and to say, you know, do you think this was okay? He's going to say, uh, you know, my, my personal opinions are irrelevant. And let's assume they get really mad about that and say, well, we're holding you in contempt because you won't tell us if you like this or not. Uh, then you have to go to a court potentially and, and convince a judge, you know, we really need to know whether he thinks this is Okay, you know what I mean? Like, that's going to be a hard argument to make. So he knows that. And so, A, they're not going to be able to force him to give his opinion. And B, he doesn't want to. And so I'm not, it's not clear to me what's even going to happen here. And by the way, he has not agreed to May 15th. Uh, they asked him to appear. He hasn't answered. So we don't even know if he wants to show up, even though he's been given the green light from his boss, ostensibly, um, uh, in, in the form of bars agreement. But um, he may not even want to do it and may, you know, sort of force them to be more clear and specific about what they want him to come and divulge, he may just say, look, you've got almost 500 pages of stuff. That's kind of all I have to say on that. And I just, I just don't think he's going to stand up there and go, oh, yeah, this president is terrible right. and should definitely go to jail. Like, that just doesn't seem like the kind of thing he's going to stand up there and do. I think he'll be very disappointing um, for, for a lot of Democrats I, when he actually gets there. I meant to say it in the report, but I forgot. So uh, I'll say it now. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, that's right. He is, right. He is guilty of collusion. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. He's not going to say that. And then there, well, the other part is too is that I mean, so but he did send a letter to his to his boss saying you sort of what you said in that press conference didn't really contextualize my work. So it seems like there's some contention there. But I mean, Barr obviously is a true. Excuse me, uh, Mueller is 
clearly a traditional prosecutor, very professional, as, as Melissa said, and is like, unlikely to be sort of the, the revelation that folks are hoping for. But at the same time, I do think that it's pretty telling that he would have communicated saying that the context of, of how you characterize this uh, was questionable. But right now, it's like Mueller is like this enigma somewhere, probably sitting up with Sherpas, uh, contemplating when he might come down from on high to give something for the Judiciary Committee to, to finally breathe from. And I just don't know that's going to happen. But I do find it interesting. I mean, I, and the other thing that really tripped me out was Rosenstein's resignation letter, where he, I was, I mean, I thought this whole time he was really, I, like, if I would have been him in that office and how bad Trump was talking about me, I would have been extreme. I just can't believe that the way he characterized this is a privilege to have worked for you, Mr. President. And I was just like, did he look at Twitter over the last two years at all and see how badly this man was talking about him? So I don't know. So I actually don't know what's wrong with these people, period. Uh, because if somebody's talking bad about you over here, somebody's mischaracterizing your work over there, and then what do you expect to get from them? I, and I think maybe, I think folks probably expected too much, and what happened was not enough for, for the Dems to feel like they can move forward with some more... Um, strident approaches. Well, yeah, and it seems a little bit like because the report comes back and it's not what folks expected, right? It does not indict anyone. It sort of exonerates them of the underlying issue. Um, and I think to some degree, the anger toward Barr is kind of like, well, we can get him. You know what I mean? Like, even though we're sort of really frustrated that we can't get the president, well, we can get that guy and we can like try and put him in jail and we could hold him in contempt and maybe we can even impeach him, right? You, he can be impeached yeah. um, for your gross misconduct or whatever. Like we'll get at him. And, and, and it seems like I, I'm not saying Bard hasn't done anything worthy of the ire of Democrats, but I am saying that it seems like there's a lot of um, pent up energy <laughs> that is being released in his direction <laughs> um, as, as, as a result of the, of the Mueller report. Uh, and then, and then his actions after yeah, that. Yeah. A couple of questions here from the audience, both about the tax returns. Um, what would be the consequence if someone in the treasury department leaked Trump's tax returns? Um, why can't a journalist get a hold of Trump's tax returns? Um, are we talking criminal acts there, or well, David K. Johnson got like two pages, and there was this like ninety-minute wind-up on the Rachel Maddow show two right. years ago, and all of a sudden it came out. Yeah, it was once right. again. There was nothing there. I'm like, right. really? I was sitting there with popcorn just <laughs> coming out of my mouth, and it was like nothing. It was like two pages of nothing. So yeah. yeah, it was. It was like, that was so frustrating. No, exactly. This is the, this is the presidency of expectations. Yeah. We're going to have this wonderful thing. Something's going to happen. You're, you're going to be Arya. You're going to have the dragon glass. You're going to stab the, the Night King, and that's going to be it. And it's not happening, okay? We've had, I'll go back again to, to Mayor Pete Buttigieg. I mean, he said, we keep looking for this one thing that's going to bring this guy down. We've had incidents after incidents of terrible things, and it hasn't, it hasn't affected him. You know, Maureen Dowd wrote a thing, Sonny, I don't know, did you see it, where she was talking about, and I'm not sure I agree, but her idea is that someone like Mueller can be so fair and so even-handed and so down the middle that it actually tips the scale a little bit because he didn't want to make a decision to make it make a difficult call that could have an effect on the presidency and the government and the constitution therefore he played it down the middle and her point is trump's not playing it down the middle right you know they're they're going as low as they can and therefore they're losing and that and it was it was a thinker i'm like again i'm not sure i'm on board but yeah well the other part too and i was thinking about this going back i was talking to a colleague of mine who's an editor for bloomberg who's been really coordinating a lot of the coverage uh, of, of this report. And I was asking that we were talking about, you know, 2016 and just before that, and, you know, that Obama, the, that administration was aware that this meddling was going on with the Russians, but then sort of being the statesman that he was seeking to be, didn't want to put the thumb on the scale. There was even time at the leadership at that time in Congress, there was talk about putting together this sort of uh, joint statement and McConnell, McConnell didn't want to do it. And so as a result, Nothing happened, right? So oh, this situation, the effort to sort of be fair, I think in some ways you could argue even can harm democracy. Saying something that this is happening, uh, they were trying to be so careful not to tip the scales for Clinton, not to look how they, they were playing favorites. And in fact, what ended up happening? It, it created maybe 
I, I wouldn't say that that interference led to an election result, but it certainly continued to sow the level of tribalism and divisiveness in our society writ large that is certainly paralyzing our efforts to move forward on policy is what we really ought to be talking about. That's exactly right. Well, but I have to say I disagree. I'm an institutionalist. Like, I don't think the ends ever justify the means. This is four years in a more than 200-year history. If people don't like it, if people are on Mueller's side, then show it at the ballot box. Okay, this is the way that we do things. We don't tip the scales just to make it because we think our idea of fair is, you know, sort of capital F, you know, and that, that that's not the, that that is that that's a difference. But that's just, you know, whatever. We can all have our philosophical differences on that in terms of like, yes, there were attempts to be fair, but should we all be degenerate just to win? No, does it? No, you know, no, I mean, should right. should Barack Obama have entered in? You know, have had done had, had tried to do things? Well, could that, there have been a way that he could have done it that that was? appropriate for the situation. Right. Yeah, potentially, yeah. No, I, yeah. I get you. Yeah, yeah, that's all I, I mean. I, I don't think mean, there's a lot of people... And but, 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 and again, I'm not sure I buy this whole thing, but Nancy Pelosi raises the specter that if Trump loses in 2020, he won't give up power. Mm-hmm. Look, and that is, that is so far down the crazy town road... That is not going to happen. Well, the only way you can keep power after your term is done is if the military is on your that's side. Right. That's you right. need the guns. But if it, you don't have the guns, as we see in Venezuela, you don't have the power. But is the, and but, uh, so as long as the military no. is willing to say, sorry, sir, we're going to drag you out of this big old White House kicking and screaming, and I think they are, right. um, then... We're good. Like, don't freak out. Like, forget his tweets. Like, the military is on board with the institutions and the Constitution. I don't think he has convinced a majority of them to to put tanks out to the White House and prevent Quite the country, an orderly yes. transfer. Quite the country. And I yield to my colleague from San Francisco, but do we want to see that spectacle of someone being dragged out of the White House? I don't know. I think some people I just, would. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need to answer that question, but I really kind of don't want to. I know, I know, <laughs> you, I know. You on camera? Yeah, I'm on camera. That's a, <laughs> that would be a tragedy. But to answer the question, by the way, first of all, if a journalist could get those things, y'all, it, they would have been gotten. Um, I, that is not a thing. Um, could someone leak them? Yes. And would they? What would they get for that? Probably a ticker tape parade in the city of San Francisco. But uh, but. It, it would be a federal offense, uh, and there certainly would be, you know, some consequences. But it, it would seem to me that if they were, if they were leakable, if they were accessible by someone who could leak them, they would have been leaked by now. Uh, and so I'm not saying that they're, wherever they are is airtight. I was actually surprised that in the Mueller report, mm-hmm. it didn't refer to them. It mm-hmm. seemed I, I think a lot of folks were hoping mm-hmm. that in the course of the investigation, he certainly could get them, right. and then you know, expose something or even talk about them or say, we looked at them and there was nothing there. I mean, whatever. Um, but I was kind of surprised that mm-hmm. th- that wasn't part of the overall yeah. investigation. Yeah. Well, and isn't there a bill headed toward Newsom's desk, Governor Newsom's desk, um, that would require anyone who wants to be on the presidential ballot in California to release their tax returns? Is that? Yeah, yeah but it's not, it's not useful here. It really isn't. It has to do yeah. with the presidential primary. So yeah. understand if his only opponent is what is it William Weld, Weld. Weld. Yeah. Um, or as I call him Bob Weld. You call him Bob. Bob Weld. <laughs> <laughs> like so Billy this Bob by the way Weld. so this is just to be on the presidential primary ballot. So whoever the he could be left off our presidential primary ballot and still get the nomination, right? right? And then if he gets the nomination, he definitely gets to be on the general ballot. So it doesn't stop him from being on the November ballot. It would only stop him from being on the March ballot, which he, A, may not even care. You know what I mean? Like, California, maybe, maybe not. Interestingly, it's the Democrats who might actually be more impacted by this, because there are a number of Democratic candidates running for president who really need to be, who need the California votes, who can't get the nomination without the California votes. And I'll just, to go back to the Republican side as well, what the, remember that the party really makes the rules when it comes to delegates. And so let's assume that, you know, there's like 200 delegates that a person would be giving up by not being on the ballot in California. All the party would have to do is the day before the convention, release all the, can, release all the delegates from their obligations and allow the California delegates to vote for Donald Trump. In the, on the actual floor. So there's a lot of reasons why I don't think this 
is going to be effective at getting him to turn over his tax returns just because of the constraints of both the party mechanisms and the fact that whoever the party actually nominates has to be on that November ballot, even if it's Donald Trump, even if it's somebody who hasn't turned over their tax returns. So again, I think the bigger impact here is actually going to be on the Democrats, some of whom have not turned over tax returns. I know Bernie Sanders finally did. I know Kamala Harris uh, turned over a ton. Um, but it really was going to force Democrats to turn over their tax returns uh, more than President Trump, especially if it's if he continues to only be challenged by William Weld, then, you know, I, I think he's going to be fine and he's not going to need um, to be on our primary ballot necessarily. OK, well, let's move into our next topic, which is, in fact, some of the stuff in the presidential race. Uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, of course, officially threw his hat into the ring uh, and quickly moved well ahead of the other candidates. In a poll released today from Hill Harris X, I believe it's called, Biden had a 32-point lead over the second place Bernie Sanders, 46 to 14 percent. Pete Buttigieg was in third place with 8 percent, Elizabeth Warren in fourth with 7 percent. And Biden has moved quickly. He's courting African-Americans in the South. Um, Any thoughts on... Actually, let's stick with that aspect, because with with Biden going there, with Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, both expected to do well with that uh, demographic. Do we have any sense of where, what role that very important base of the Democratic Party is going to go? Are they going to be a kingmaker or a queenmaker? A queenmaker. <laughs> um, I was surprised that he took on Trump right away. And he's one of the first to do that, because conventional wisdom is we want to concentrate on other things, health care, education. And he took him on immediately. And it was kind of breathtaking that everybody went, whoa, oh boy, are we going to get into a thing here? He called him a clown. Um, can he sustain that? I don't know. But it had to give the other candidates pause to think that when he did that, the reaction was actually, we've been waiting for somebody to do that. We've reached the point with, like we said, about the whole idea of the Mueller investigation that, his, that Trump's advisors just said, we're just... We're just ignoring that. We're just pretending like that didn't happen. And they've done that so much that it's normalized such bizarre and irregular behavior that I think for a moment, Biden said something that people were like, oh, yeah, right, I remember. This is not how presidents behave. I don't know that he, it will take him to the White House, but it was, it was kind of a moment in the start of this campaign that may embolden other people. Well, to a certain extent, it's not surprising because if he started with policy, given that now Bernie Sanders in his last run has pushed so much of the party platform to the left, that if he starts talking about health care, if he starts talking about college, and he may not even be as progressive on some of those positions as some of the other candidates, it seemed to me it make logical sense to actually go after Trump rather than start talking policy. And it makes him look like a, like a foregone conclusion. I mean, that's what a front mm-hmm. runner does. Remember, mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton didn't debate Bernie Sanders on the campaign trail. She debated Donald Trump and the Republican Party, because, you know, yeah. sort of like, you know, it sort of, it to some degree diminishes the other folks. You're just saying like, okay, so I'm going to win this and let's just move on. Right. <laughs> uh, but also, so Biden the other day, I think he was in South Carolina, but I, I, I can't be totally sure, but he, he was in his speech and I think it was like six times he referenced his good pal, Barack Obama. I shouldn't say my pal, that's a little too colloquial. I should say the president of the United States, Barack Obama. I just like really kept reminding everyone that he is friendly with and was the VP for Barack Obama. And for a lot of folks, I think in the audience and um, certainly folks, um, you know, in South Carolina, they were pretty receptive and there's, you know, some great, you know, He's a little halo effect of that. Do you people remember that as a simpler time? <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and so you know, he's really purposefully, I think, talking a lot about his friend Barack mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and really invoking that to, to sort of help, help him with, you know, with black voters. And I think below the, below the, below the radar, he's, he knows he's not going to get an endorsement from Barack Obama right now. And then he said, I actually asked Barack not to endorse me. Which I'm, I'm sure he did, right? Didn't we all think I that? didn't break up with him. He no, he didn't break up with me. I broke up with him. That's right. Well, <laughs> see, it's not you, it's me. It's me. It really is. He's doing what I call the brother adjacent move. <laughs> and, um, and so I just, you know, the big question I have for, you know, these candidates mm-hmm. uh, is what are you going to do to help uh, people of color in this country, right? Whether they're black, brown, what have you. You know, there's huge wealth gaps that exist. 
Uh, and so, you know, what I, what I find interesting is that uh, the conversation around how do you often help black voters, particularly in the media, often is with panels that actually don't have any people of color on them. And so I don't know how you're going to have a conversation about policy and debating that policy and how you approach it and without those folks involved. And so I, and, and the reality is, too, is that the issues that are facing black voters in America are similar to face all voters in America, right? Concern about health care, concern about jobs, concern about the cost of housing, concern about um, equity in society. Maybe that may not be the same for others. But so I, I, what I would like to see, my, one of my big frustrations, I think, with Obama, I mean, he was a, a true statesman, and actually I think he read the reports that came across his desk, so that was really <laughs> refreshing, was that I think, I think the, the criticism of, of his presidency was that he didn't do enough specifically for black voters, although he did focus on uh, criminal justice reform, which was very important. So I think, and not to say that there should be more done from another group than others, although I think some folks would feel differently about that. But I think what's going to be important is, are you going to be able to articulate a policy that speaks to this constituency? I mean, to a great degree, there's a lot of criticism by conservative blacks that say, why should Democrats consistently get our votes when it's sort of taken for granted? So it remains to be seen which candidate is going to speak specifically, because I think there's a measure of fear. The one thing that I was really interested to see was how Elizabeth Warren was quite specific about the need for reparations for black people. And I was like, damn, she just came out and said it. And I think a lot of folks are not always willing to be uh, that specific with policies that I think are, are perceived as uh, controversial. Well, the only thing I'd say about Biden, the only thing that concerns me about Biden is after this long Hamlet-like, you know, deciding period where I will or I won't, I'm thinking, you know, we've heard of the long goodbye, this is the long hello. We did the long hello. <laughs> while I touch you. Oh, yeah, while I touch you. <laughs> after all this, somebody said, what about the Anita Hill hearings? And he fell apart. I mean, you still don't have a good answer for that because right. that's going to be an important thing. And this touching thing is going to be an important thing. And you need to be ready to, to take that on and hopefully provide an explanation, which I'm not really sure we're going to have a good one with the Anita Hill hearing. So there's a lot of baggage there. He knows it. I'm sure he, I'm sure he does. But I'd like to have seen a better rollout in the sense that you know you're getting these questions. Where are your answers? You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Um, how, so Senator Kamala Harris got some uh, in the spotlight with the bar hearing, um, trying to specifically pin him down on whether or not anyone from the White House had in any way indicated that he should uh, prosecute somebody. Um, how do you think she came off in that? I mean, she wasn't in the top four in that poll I cited earlier, but, you know, it's early days and anything can happen. Uh, she tends to impress folks when she gets in her prosecutorial Mode. I thought she killed it. I don't, I don't know what you guys think, but I thought she killed it. She had she had bar sputtering. He didn't know what to say. He had he had to repeat the question. I mean, if she can be in a prosecutor, if she could be in a courtroom every single time, she would nail it. I mean, that was that was sensational. I thought. Well, yeah, being a district attorney in this city, and then being the state attorney general for the this the state that this size. I mean, yeah, she's masterful in that regard. I'm, I guess the question will be, how is that going to translate in other parts of her campaign? Uh, but she's a very impressive person, and I think uh, very intelligent, and has a great story and a great um, something I think to share and an interesting history that sort of connects with folks. Mm -hmm. I guess the que my question is, is I wonder why she isn't doing quite as well. I think there's been this Buttigieg, you know, he's so really interesting guy, so, so authentic uh, and incredibly dynamic himself. I mean, very young, but but I, I do question why is it someone of her stature, her clear abilities isn't doing, isn't polling better um, this early. Well, I think as Willie, uh, Willie Brown said, she's made a few missteps at the, yeah. at the start. She's been very quick to take things on, and then some of those things turned out to be, woo, maybe we shouldn't have. Yeah. You know, and that's not, I, I mean, I, my sense of her is she's cautious. Someone's suggesting that you should try to do something. Let's make a splash here. And that's the problem, making a splash. But that was a good moment. 
Um, yeah, I mean, she certainly, I mean, so there were two other candidates, uh, you know, that we know of uh, on the committee <laughs> every, every day. It's like, okay. Uh, so uh, Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar, mm-hmm. and um, she did so much better than either of them, for sure. And the reason you know she did well, you don't even have to watch, um, is you got a fundraising email 30 seconds after it was over <laughs> in, that included the clip. <laughs> like, like her social media team is amazing. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, she was kind of proud of that, but, but she did do legitimately a good job. She got him to admit that he, so she asked him, has anyone in the white house ever suggested to you that you investigate anyone? And he was like, what do you mean by the word suggest? And she just starts listing. She becomes a human thesaurus and she's like, imply. Uh, you know, like infer, infer, look at you, you know what I mean? Like, and he was like, what? And finally she got him to say, I don't know. Um, which was interesting. And then the next day she asked the department of justice, um, to look into whether that actually ever happened. But, but, and it seemed really disingenuous that like, maybe you didn't know, or maybe you could, and look in that moment, it's, she was the last one. Remember she's the most junior person. So she's the last one to ask questions. Maybe he's tired. He could have said, let me think about it and get back to you. Um, but he didn't do that. He said, I don't know. And that, that seems a little different than like, I'm being put on the spot and I can't think of the answer at this moment, which I think would have been a legit answer. But instead of doing that, he just said, you know, I don't know what you mean by suggest and I don't, and I don't know, uh, which, and that was right out the gate. Oh, yeah. Um, and so the president then later said, Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure Kamala Harris was really nasty to him. And so immediately nasty woman yeah. fundraising stuff, you know, T-shirts, you know, already uh, being printed, uh, really taking advantage of that. So I, I will say of all the, the, the candidates uh, on the committee, she certainly did, um, you know, t- really grab that moment and go with it. And in fact, you know, she sits next to Cory Booker and he's sitting next to her, like so hard not to laugh smile, yeah. and smile. Yep. Like there's whole gifs of him like, <laughs> <laughs> like, there's, it's sweet. They're clearly friends. He was clearly happy for her and happy with what was going on. But but she seemed to be the only candidate who really recognized that was a moment that you need to just sort of grab and take. And every news story on TV yep. Yep. Th- used the clips from her. Yep. Colbert said she was the star of the hearings. I mean, that's just, you can't get better than that. Yeah, but, whether it, can, it translates at the right. polls, you know. And what, what it says to me is this primary is going to be decided on debates. When they get those people on the stage, that that's when we're going to start to say, I like what... He said, I like what she said. I didn't like what he said. We're going to start to see it. It's just so difficult because we have the soundbite moments, and that was a great one for Kamala. I mean, you can't beat that. But and it was right in her wheelhouse, too, so she got an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Although I'm nervous strength. about the debates. Now, they're, they're doing two, two like, ten-people debates. Yep. Yep. I mean, think about that. I mean, let's assume there's no commercials, there's no introductions, and there's no time for questions. Still, everybody gets yeah. six minutes. Like, how are you supposed to... You know, unless you walk out there wearing a clown suit and then set yourself on fire, like, what are you going to do in that six minutes to get yourself from a 1% to a 15%? Actually, that's Elizabeth Warren's uh, plan. Is that her plan? She's actually going to do that. (laughs) Yeah, especially now that so much of the policy positions, you know, seem sort of on a continuum, right? It's not like Bernie Sanders when he was coming out with his hair flaming and just like, (laughs) free everything for everyone. And then it was like, (laughs) people were like, what? Uh, You know, so I think it's going to be, it's going to be a challenge. Yeah, and now he's like, everybody's taking my plan. He's like, (laughs) what are we going to do? I've been saying this for years. (laughs) Um, Let's uh, move here to uh, the state of California. And uh, Governor Newsom recently, uh, well, we've already seen him downsize or slow walk Jerry Brown's high-speed rail project. Now he has downsized Brown's twin tunnel plan to transport water from north to south California. So let's talk about this. Uh, The original plan was estimated to cost 16 to 19 billion, according to estimates I've seen. Uh, it would have built two 35-mile-long tunnels under the Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta to transport this water. Um, that would now seem to be kaput. Uh, they were now going with a one-tunnel plan that will be about $10 billion, according to what I've seen. Um, and I guess some environmental groups are happy about this, and Los Angeles city leaders are not. Um, any thoughts on this? Was this, uh, do you think... a Gavin Newsom is a pathological newsmaker. He's unbelievable with making news. He just, he just is, uh, I went to an election, uh, post-election party one time, and he was there, and you could track him 
by looking where the TV cameras were. Wherever he was, there was a TV camera talking to him. And he seizes on these things like that, big ideas, big projects. Uh, the the high-speed rail is another example. Um, you know, this death penalty thing, he, he, he made an executive order. We're not going to have any more death penalty, which has hints of same-sex marriage. It's, it's, a, it's a big idea. It's the kind of thing that you do that attracts attention. Uh, that's Gavin Newsom. And someday we may be seeing Gavin Newsom in a, on a much bigger stage. Martin? Yeah, well, and I also think that, uh, I mean, this, I used to work for Barry News Group, and the Delta was a big coverage issue there. Uh, the Delta smelt and how the environment has been impacted by these pumps, right, the salmon trying to get upstream. So this is, this is obviously a big issue. Also, when the whole drought was happening in the San Joaquin Valley, the farmers were really boring down into the, to the ground to extract all of this um, groundwater, which actually caused the ground to sink. And has really, you know, has caused some damage to infrastructure. So I think, you know, there was this, I was telling folks back there that there's this quote that's attributed to Mark Twain, talks about how whiskey is for drinking, but water is for fighting. And I think that, that without a doubt in this state, water is a big issue. It's a big fight. There's a lot of constituencies at play. There's, of course, uh, the notion that, you know, we've got the hedge hedgey, everybody else beat it. I think Melissa was saying. And so, you know, we got what we need. Why don't you go work it out down there? But I think um, the big issue here is also, it's important to note, too, and there was one thing I was looking at when I was looking for this, and this is pretty interesting about this notion of of saving water. So apparently in Israel, 80% of the water that's flushed down the toilet is recycled and used for agriculture. Now, how much do you think that we use for that in that regard here? In California, it's only 8%. So in other words, we need to start tinkling into the tulips and start growing some things with, uh, with that water. So there could be some <laughs> strategic ways to approach that. Um, you got to trademark that. <laughs> Tinkling to the tulips. That's good. Yeah. We used to tiptoe, but now we're going to tickle. <laughs> That's all I got for you. That's good. That's good. Um, <laughs> uh, what about uh, Governor Newsom's move on uh, the executive order on uh, death penalty? Death penalty. Oh. That Certainly, also, again, got a lot of people saying great, and others saying, hey, we just kind of voted on this. Well, I mean, I think Chuck's point is, is well, I mean, in the sense that I think it's an important, I mean, for many people, uh, I mean, his position has been that the death penalty is, is inhumane, and then, you know, 4% of the people who end up getting the death penalty are wrongly convicted, right? And so that's not something you can circle back around from. Also, it costs billions of dollars to go through all of the uh, appeals process that, that, is, that happens in this as well. And then we also know that the death penalty is disproportionately uh, applied to people of color. So in many ways, there is a social justice component to this. And this is not to by any means... Uh, sort of to denigrate or put aside the feelings of people who've had loved ones, right, who have uh, been killed and likely as a result, and, and, and therefore their perpetrators receive the death penalty. It's not to, to cast that aside at all. But I think given what we know about the uh, injustices and um, the un- imbalance of how the criminal justice system and how justice is meted out in our society, I think this is an understandable approach to take from a very progressive uh, governor. Okay. Um, I also would note uh, Governor Newsom's, and I guess I think it might be part of his new budget plan or something, uh, is talking about how much health care will be given to uh, undocumented immigrants. Already, I guess, uh, undocumented immigrants up to the age of 19 are covered mm-hmm. by state programs, and uh, he would raise it to 25. And there are other Democrats, of course, in Sacramento who want to expand it even more. But uh, I, I was reading what uh, I think the Sacramento Bee today was reporting um, how there are f- some health officials in the state who are saying, wait a minute, you're taking that from, you know, STD programs and some, you know, uh, things that, you know, deal, would deal with measles outbreaks and things like that to go and, you know, because it, it, it's, there's, the, the state is basically saying, we will be providing this and therefore you won't need this other money, so we'll just take that to help pay for this. Um, but of course, that doesn't all equal up and, and doesn't all go to the same counties that are making that. But I think we do know that Gavin Newsom has been chomping at the bit as a lieutenant governor under Jerry Brown. And when he first got the job as lieutenant governor, I happened to do an interview with him, and he had this idea that he would he went to Jerry Brown's office and he had this plan that he was going to create this commission. It was going to work on uh, homelessness and housing. 
and it would get some of the top people in the state, put them all together. He would chair the commission. Then they would bring their findings back to Jerry Brown and give them to him. And Jerry Brown said, why don't you go back to your office and preside over Congress and leave me alone? And it was, he said, I mean, he was very, very candid about it. It was, a, it was a moment for me to realize the lieutenant governor's job is not to make policy. And that's what he loves to do. So given this opportunity, he will go in many different directions. As we've said many times, he has a thousand ideas. Let's boil it down to 10. Try to stick with those. That'd be good. But yeah, I mean, he's, a, he's definitely someone who wants to make waves. And I do, and one last point about this too, is I recall there was one other person with really nice hair uh, some years ago <laughs> that ended up really making waves uh, in this regard and came out of this state to go to some house that's white. So, different party, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> Took was me a while Brad to follow Pitt? that train. Who was that? Work with me. <laughs> Reagan. Oh. Oh. All right. All right. Nice hair. Nice hair. All right. Okay. He had really nice hair. Um... I, I do think we should at least note the uh, the synagogue shooting and is it Poway? Am I pronouncing Poway. that correct? Poway. Thank you. Uh, in Southern California, where a gunman had killed one person, injured three, including the rabbi. Uh, this past Friday, the, for their Friday night services, they were packed, standing room only. Um, now, around the same time as the Poway attack, a 26-year-old former U.S. Army soldier was charged with plotting terror attacks in L.A., planning to detonate explosives at a white nationalist rally, and I found it interesting that the attack on churches in Sri Lanka on Easter were reportedly carried out by a group enraged by the attack on Muslims in Christchurch, New Zealand. The Christchurch, New Zealand attacks were apparently committed by uh, someone who was supposedly doing it in response to terrorist attacks committed by Muslim terrorists around the world, and there was an an L.A., so then this L.A. attempted terrorist was someone who was reportedly uh, trying to avenge attacks against Muslims around the world. So we are, I mean, we're seeing this in like high speed. Cycle, All this stuff happened within... The cycle continues. Yeah. And internationally. In, yes. Yeah. Yes. It's just unbelievable. You know, I don't think we can discount the level of vitriol coming from the highest office in the land or the person that holds the highest office in the land. I mean, we know that um, the level of hate crimes have in, has increased... Uh, in the teens over the last over the last two years, I don't think that that is a, a coincidence. Uh, when you have uh, a president of the United States who speaks the way he has in the in the rallies he did leading up to uh, his election, uh, talks about uh, white supremacists as uh, in Charlottesville as being you know some nice people. It's almost like writing a, being a newspaper man and writing a twelve inch story about. Um, the Holocaust and giving the Nazis six inches and expose their views, right? I mean, it's just not something you would do. So I think that, uh, I, I think this cannot be discounted. Granted, it's international, but I think people, um, extremists have been emboldened by the rhetoric of the President of the United States, and I think we just have to be real about that. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I there's an old South Park episode, the 9-11 episode of South Park. I don't know if you've ever seen that, where they're trying to figure out like who calls 9-11, right? They're mm-hmm. talking about like the 9-11 truthers. And, um, and they find out at the end, sorry, this is, <laughs> this is a very old episode, I'm spoiling it. Um, <laughs> at the end, they find out that the CIA is actually trying to make people believe that it was an inside job because it would mean they're competent. Um, and so at the end, they go, we want you to believe we did this secretly because, like, that would mean we're amazing. Like, we pulled this thing off. Like, that's crazy. Uh, I think to some degree, uh, you know, we sort of give the president too much power and credit um, when you say, you know, that somehow a bombing in Sri Lanka is related to something he said at a rally in Alabama. I, I, I'm not sure uh, that, that, that there's a connection between that or, or that even without President Trump, it's, it, let's say Hillary Clinton was elected president, if everything would be fine. You know what I mean? We wouldn't have any of this, uh, any of these things. Like it's it's hard to know. It's hard to know the negative of of what's happening here. But I just I just caution. You know, the, the tides. He doesn't control the tides or the setting of the sun. You know what I mean? Like let's let's be careful about how much because when you say he emboldens like some dude in Sri Lanka, like I'm not necessarily you know, who he emboldens yeah. Sri Lanka. But I just but... mean like it, I th- I feel like it, it gives him it almost gives him too much power. He is, he is who he is president because people voted for him, and I think it's 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 
there was always there was obviously a zeitgeist he tapped into, and so he as a human. I don't think is the one emboldening people or, or creating this environment. I think the environment was there. That's why he's president. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so it's not, I, 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 I yeah. would just caution against saying it's, it's him as opposed to the world we live in. Well, could I, he, you know, let, let, like, let's not make him, you know, the king of the world. And actually, I, if I could just take this actually into the next topic that we wanted to talk about, cause I think they're related or could be. And that is, uh, Alex Jones, Milo Yiannopoulos, Laura Loomer, Paul Joseph Watson, Paul Nealon and Louis Farrakhan were permanently banned from Facebook and Instagram. Instagram's owned by Facebook. Um, these are all extremist voices on one thing or another. There's what I'm getting at is more kind of an all-around right. mix of 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 uh, an environment in which the 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 people who are spewing hate or even intentional confusion of one sort or another. Um, have megaphones that, you know, are a making them money in some cases. B making Facebook and YouTube and others money and building their brand. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, it, which is also to say that some of these people may not even believe what they're saying. Yeah, the th- I'm not as con- I'm I'm concerned about the extremists, and that's that's a terrible, terrible thing. And if they get any comfort or release from that, but my concern is when I go to dinner sometimes with a different group of people. Someone will say something like, well, I, I probably shouldn't say this. This isn't very PC, but... And then they say something that's offensive. And, and I feel like that's what the president's given you, is he's given you that license to say something... You, you know it's over the line. You know you really shouldn't be saying this. And I would go back to what Melissa said, because this guy's tweeting all kinds... I don't know if you saw it, but he, he just tweeted about the Kentucky Derby. And he said it was ridiculous. They over, overturned the Kentucky Derby. You know? They're so PC. All I can think is it, he was upset the horses weren't white. <laughs> what, what, does he care about, what does he care about the Kentucky Derby? I mean, this is just a scattergun of opinions that, that go out. You can't talk yeah, but, him out of a lot of this stuff. Yeah, but he's the president of the United States. And I think... Melissa, I would push back a little bit on this notion that he's not the kingmaker. He's not. Yeah, he, he doesn't cause the sun to come up, but he it he is the quote unquote leader of the free world. And for and and what the president of the United States says and the dog whistles that he has been blowing for the last two years cannot be understated. And yes, it's not going to necessarily mean that any old person is going to go do these things. I mean, America's had these issues simmering for quite some time. But it certainly emboldens and certainly empowers. It's certain the people who are unhinged and can think, oh, my goodness, all of a sudden, when he says that, that, that extremists in Charlottesville who are walking, yelling anti-Semitic uh, slogans about how we will not be replaced and says that they're good people on both sides, that is an affirmation to people who are extremists. And I think it does result, and it's not just for some reason that, the, that these uh, hate, um, uh, uh, hate attacks have risen in the last two years, what would we attribute that to? Well, well I, I, I don't know that hate, hate, that hate convictions for hate crimes have risen. I know reports of hate crimes have risen, and right. that's not the same thing. If more people are just aware and are reporting things as hate crimes, that is not the same thing as hate crimes actually happening and being convicted and you know, a jury or a judge finding that, that they actually happen. And, and I'm not denying that it is or isn't. I'm just saying, like, you know, one number, that, that number doesn't equal like me too. Like more hateful we've, things. We've had a lot more reports. Necessarily of, of, happen. Of but in terms of Facebook, the, um, you know, it's, it's what's weird is why now, right? Alex Jones said that Sandy Hook was a conspiracy in 2013, and he wasn't banned from Facebook then, right? We don't understand why now. We don't understand who else is on this list, right? They ban these guys permanently for life. And I'm not saying they didn't deserve it, but I am, say, I am saying, number one, permanently. So, like, if they turn over a new leaf, do they get to petition to, like, Facebook court to say, please let me back on. I swear I will not be, you know, mean again. Um, so there's sort of that issue. And, and then who else is on this banned list that we don't know about because they're not public, people. And then there isn't any sort of place we can go and say, okay, these are all the folks that aren't allowed back on this website. And here's why. Um, and so, you know, I, again, I'm not defending the folks who were, who were banned, but I am saying it's, it's an example of like the extraordinary power 
that Facebook has um, to ban people with or without telling you and to ban people without with or without telling you why, because we still don't know why. I mean, you know, generally these are, you know, folks who, um, you know, who are really controversial, but but we don't know exactly what they just did. Why? Why today? Why this week did this happen? What exactly precipitated this? We still don't know. That seems pretty arbitrary and secret in a way that is still pretty scary for folks who are, you know, for, for, for a company that has um, created an ecosystem of folks who are making money from, the, from it and they encourage that and they want people to be dependent on it. And then there's this, you know, there's this black box where, you know, be banished people <laughs> go and we don't know who's in there and we don't know why. I think we do know why. We know why because Mark Zuckerberg has been put on a spit and turned over a campfire because he the data got out. And I, it's a classic case. I mean, we talk so often about startups and, and, and uh, the, the, new, the new economy where we just go fast and break things. We just do things and see how it works out. Well, Facebook ended up to be one of the great data collectors of all time. And they've got data on all of us, if you're in, in Facebook, that is unbelievable. And they began to, as Martin said, try to find a way to monetize that. And they weren't as careful as they should have been. And now they're on an apology tour. They're, they are trying. We're trying. We're really trying hard. I'm serious. We're really trying. We, we banned Alex Jones. You know, it, they've got to make some. But it, this story has gotten so far ahead of them. I don't know if Facebook yeah. makes it back. Well, also, and the scale of what we're, t- what we're dealing with here. I mean, sometimes you just don't understand. There's like two point some billion people that are on Facebook. Mm-hmm. How are you going to hire the, a number of people necessary mm-hmm. to sort of police mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. Same thing with YouTube. I mean, the, the, the numbers that we're talking about here are just astronomical. Uh, and also, in some places in, in parts of the country, the other thing that's really important is that Facebook has, be- has become a source of news and information yes. for people in places where there are news deserts. Mm-hmm. And so there's this other issue, too, that, that sort of... That it is a very vital ecosystem that provides a lot of information and connectivity, but at the same time, it's completely gotten away from them. And so I agree with, with Chuck saying that it's a, an apology tour, and I also agree with Melissa that, so what's up with this black box? And once you start banning people, what does that mean? Who gets to make that determination? And as a journalist, my big concern of what has happened in the last number of years is you know, that there's this great democratization, right, that the internet has provided our society, and also has provided people who want to contribute to the narrative tell stories and to be a contributor, right? The, the barrier to entry to be a publisher, a purveyor of information has, has, has been wiped away, right? It used to be newspapers, used to be television stations. Now people can just jump in. The challenge then becomes is that what has that then led to? And, and, and so I think what we all have to be mindful of as well is that what has led to is that Google, Facebook have become the most powerful platforms because no one even uses Bing. And, and as a result of that, they are able to control this ecosystem and the money that often flows to uh, credible news organizations that are there to provide accurate news and information. So there's a lot to consider here. Uh, and I think banning people on an apology tour, I mean, ha- who's the arbiter of free speech in America? Is it going to be Facebook? Is it going to be Google? Or is it going to be us? One of the, talking about data that they have and how they use it, um, one of the, I remember seeing stories a few years ago that had, was part of this whole giving Facebook a, black, a self-inflicted black eye, and that was like people, you know, white nationalist organizations being able to do, to target uh, advertisements that they would put out by, you know, people who think Jews are running the world or, you mm-hmm. know, who hate black people or something, and they had that data, they served it up. Oh, you didn't want us to. And kind of like just the opposite of that, I recently have been getting a ton of ads served up on my Facebook feed for T-shirts. I have no idea why. It's like I haven't searched for T-shirts. So you click on this little thing saying, you know, why am I seeing this ad? And it said, this advertiser has been looking for people who are over the age of 18 and live in or have been to the United States. (laughs) It's like, okay, you can't get more vague than that. Although they do keep serving up shoe ads for me that I do end up clicking through. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, big data works in some cases and not in others. Um, before we get to the news quiz, I did just want to spend a few minutes talking about uh, Ellen Tauscher. She's the former representative from the East Bay. 
U.S. representative from the East Bay. She passed away earlier this week, or excuse me, last week. Um, she was an arms control expert who later served as an undersecretary of state for arms control and international security affairs under President Obama. Um, any thoughts? I mean, you're from the East Bay. She represented that area. I, th- I think you two know her better than, than I, but I was in Walnut Creek. I lived in Walnut Creek when she was representing us, and I met her a time or two, and uh, I really... It's damning with faint praise, but I never would have guessed that she was as accomplished as she was because she was so down to earth. Mm -hmm. She was so easy to talk to. She seemed like just a regular person. And as as we were saying earlier, I mean, she was the the youngest woman ever to have a seat on the the stock exchange. I mean, she was remarkable. Her life was remarkable. And yet, I think she she never lost that that touch that made her uh, electable and made her Remarkable. There was a saying about her being so close to her constituents that uh, in her hometown there, whenever three people would gather, one of them was Ellen Tauscher. (laughs) (laughs) So on on, uh, near election day, Dianne Feinstein went to City Hall to cast her ballot because she wasn't going to be in the city on election day. She'd be in D.C. She came a little early and there was a little press gaggle. So we're there with our cameras and Ellen Tauscher was there. And um, and so we asked Dianne Feinstein some questions, but we asked... um, Ellen Tauscher some questions because she had been involved with the uh, the House, you know, with the Democrats retaking of the House. She was big on fundraising and helping to organize that whole effort. I don't know if you guys know this, but she was really, really integral to the effort to take those Orange County seats uh, and flip another another couple seats in the state of California. Um, and I interviewed her about this issue. And she, first of all, she looked amazing. You would not guess uh, in any way that she was sick at all. We were stunned. To, to hear that, that she had passed, she seemed perfectly healthy. Again, this is back in November. Um, but she was really calm. And I said, aren't you freaking out? Because right, we were doing, we were getting all the early ballots and like young people were not turning in early ballots. And we were going, the numbers are not showing what you need to happen is happening. And she just smiled and said, nope, I think it'll be okay. Uh, and it was just totally cool. But she, that was, but she was very involved until right until the end. She was, I, I, I hope people understand that she was really active and, uh, and critical to that, to that effort, at least in California, um, to, 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 for the Democrats to take some of those house seats and, um, was, just a state stateswoman, right, right up until you know months before. And I think to that to that point too is that she co-founded the organization. Uh, you draw the line twenty twenty one, which is seeking to champion independent and nonpartisan redistricting commission to resolve what's described as a constitutional crisis about how uh, congressional <coughs> districts are gerrymandered. And you know she sought to do this in a bipartisan way. So I think at a time when there's so much tribalism politically, uh, the way she approached this issue that is really one about the constitution and the sort of the uh, the, the validity of our electoral system and how things are supposed to be and supposed to work, uh, I think that speaks volumes to her character. I should also mention she was a member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors, um, <laughs> and I had the pleasure of interviewing her once for a short documentary we made on civility and political dialogue, and I was just pleased to, to discover it. I'm very smart, but also very sharp sense of humor, and I, I loved that. So uh, rest in peace, Ellen Tauscher. Um, yeah. Well, on that note, let's do a live news quiz. Uh, Fran is gonna, going to come up here, and she's going to deliver chocolate to people who get the questions right. So I will ask a question. If you think you know the answer, raise your hand. I'll call on you. And then if you're right, Fran will give you chocolate. Can you get it? Good. Okay. So a new king just completed a three-day coronation ceremony intended to symbolically transform him into a living god in what country? Ma'am, in the third row there. Thailand, that is correct. Okay. Uh, using something called hashtag WePark, San, San Franciscans are paying $2.25 an hour to do what in parking spaces? <laughs> Way in back there, ma'am. To work. No car, work. They got a desk because it's cheaper than a WeWork. Yes. They set up a desk and put the money in the meter. That's good. Well, um, speaking of things to do in the streets, um, Oakland's government warned people from taking to the streets in support of a new kind of civic vigilante. Uh, what are these vigilantes doing? Anyone see this story? No, hold on. Anyone? Sir. 
No. Filling in potholes, that is correct. They are called pothole vigilantes. Vigilantes, however it's pronounced. And uh, of course, this being 2019, they are raising money online, so. Ha. Okay. Um, <laughs> are you throwing chocolate at people? No. She is, she is. That's the second one. Okay. Um, in only its second week of release, what movie surpassed $2 billion in global box office? Sir, along the edge of there, you're... Avengers. Aven uh, Avengers Endgame, that, that's correct. Uh, it's the quickest movie to reach that number, by the way. Uh, former Homeland Security Secretary and White House Chief of Staff John Kelly has joined the board of a company... That runs shelters for whom? Sir, right back there. The immigrants. Uh, yes, uh, 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 specifically unaccompanied immigrant children. To make sure I keep count here. Um, okay, so some more bad transportation news. A burning jet made an emergency landing in what city? Uh, back there, sir. Moscow. Uh, sir, uh, I can't see what color your shirt is. You with the hand up right now, yeah. Uh, Moscow. Moscow, that's correct. It was an Aeroflot plane. It reportedly was struck by lightning uh, on its emergency landing. I guess it struck the, the runway a couple times, ignited its fuel. 41 people were killed. I was reading today that some of the people weren't able to get off the plane because folks were getting their luggage. Getting their luggage. That, that backed up. Like it, some of the exits were blocked by people. <laughs> Yeah, I saw some, one uh, one uh, flight attendant was interviewed, and she was just, she said she was just grabbing people by the collars and pushing them out the door. Um, maximum security was the first winner to be disqualified in what race, <laughs> sir? Right there on the front, Kentucky the Kentucky Derby. That is correct. <laughs> yeah, it was it was political correctness run amok. Yep. Um, at a fashion show in Marrakesh. Who was the surprise favorite on the catwalk? Ma'am. A real cat. Oh my gosh. A grand white cat got uh, up and was uh, walking uh. around with them and was more interesting than the models. Okay. Oh, we actually answered that one during the program. Um, after a failed coup attempt in Venezuela, opposition leader and self-proclaimed president Juan Guaido, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, left open the possibility of military intervention from whom? Ma'am? The United States. That is correct. I think it's Bob Guaido. Sorry? I think it's Bob Guaido. <laughs> oh, it's William Guaido. <laughs> I'm not even going to look at them. <laughs> Uh, Fran, how many do we have left then? Two. Two. Okay, we'll make them good. Sorry? Oh my gosh. Really? Uh -oh. Well, this is good. Every, we, we spread the wealth of chocolate. Um, according to a report from the United Nations, how many species are on the verge of extinction? Right back there, sir? A million. Uh, one million. That is correct. That was the penultimate question. So the ultimate question might as well deal with the great questions of life. Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg and his husband attended Sunday school yesterday. Who taught the class? Back there right along the wall, ma'am. Jimmy Carter, that is correct, down in Marietta, Georgia. Or not Marietta, but Georgia. <laughs> I'm really bad with my cities today. Georgia, Bama, Florida, yes, somewhere. Thank you. Well, we'll have more news quiz questions and, of course, much more to discuss on our next week-to-week -week program on Thursday, May 23rd. Uh, thank you to our great panel today, Martin Reynolds, Felissa Kane, Chuck Nevius. Thanks to all of you here in the room and everyone listening and watching online. Have a great rest of your week.